Eye on Arabia, reporting, analysis, and the occasional surprise from author and Middle East specialist Joseph Browdy. While Americans debate what to do about chemical weapons in Syria, a larger issue keeps coming up. The nuclear ambitions of Syria's powerful ally, the Islamic Republic of Iran. The prospect of a nuclear-armed regime in Tehran gravely worries decision-makers in the U.S., Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the Gulf states. And while some policymakers call for a preemptive military strike and others talk about diplomacy, a few have gone beyond talk. Initiate Operation Vanquish. Repeat. Initiate Operation Vanquish. This is the sound of a simulated war between America and Iran, produced for public consumption by the United States Navy. Enemy installation coordinates confirmed. Break. Mission is a go. Repeat. Mission is a go. This is the TAO. A submarine and warplanes launch missiles at an Iranian nuclear reactor. And guess what? The Navy wins. But is that really what a U.S.-Iran war would look like? Last year at the Brookings Institution in Washington, Iran experts and former senior government officials came together to simulate a political crisis between the United States and Iran. It started out with a series of Iranian terrorist attacks in the West and an American retaliation using cyber warfare. Next, the Iran team decided to open up a new front against the U.S. in one of the most strategically important choke points in the world a narrow sea passage between Iran and the United Arab Emirates where 20% of the world's petroleum moves from its source in the Gulf states to their customers all over the world. The Iran team put a few minds into the Strait of Hormuz to signal their willingness to shift the crisis into other areas where they felt that they would have an advantage. Kenneth Pollack is a former CIA analyst and now a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution's Saban Center for Middle East Policy. He ran the crisis simulation. The American team's perspective was they are now playing with something absolutely critical to American interests and the U.S. cannot afford to allow the Iranians to do anything that might interfere with the Gulf and in particular with the flow of oil. Things got out of hand and that's how it started off as a fairly smaller affair related to terrorism suddenly expanded into a massive U.S.-Iranian war because it's all of a sudden the Iranians had involved the Gulf. So what happened in the Gulf after the fighting broke out? The Gulf was not harmed at all because the United States stepped in so quickly and so forcefully. So it sounds like, at least as far as the Gulf states were concerned, uh, U.S.-Iran war might not turn out so badly. In this simulation, the Gulf states got exactly what they wanted. But in this situation, it was the Iranians who provoked the entire crisis and the escalation. That may not be the case in the real world. We've done other simulations with other scenarios where unfortunately the Gulf states did suffer much more significantly. We ran a simulation of an Israeli strike against Iran, which resulted in very significant Iranian attacks on the Gulf states as part
part of the escalation from that. Uh, there were missile attacks against Saudi Arabia, against Bahrain, against Qatar. There were terrorist attacks in Saudi Arabia and in Bahrain. And I think the real lesson there was that things can go very well for the Gulf if the Iranians do the wrong thing, but they can also be quite painful for the Gulf if the Iranians are much more cautious uh, and much smarter about how they do things. Ken Pollack has a new book out called Unthinkable, Iran, the Bomb, and American Strategy. He makes the case for containing Iran as a preferable alternative to military confrontation in the event diplomacy fails. I asked him to lay out the logic of his argument. If Iran isn't receptive to a deal, my argument is that I think that a war with Iran would be a mistake. It runs a very real risk. We won't be able to stop the Iranian nuclear program. Uh, instead, what we will get is an enraged and unconstrained Iran with nuclear weapons, and or it will suck the United States and our allies into a much larger war. And I ultimately conclude that I think the containment is a plausible and preferable policy. We would want to have a, a rather assertive, even aggressive version of containment, uh, one that placed enormous pressure on the regime through covert action, through cyber warfare, having looked in great detail at the Cold War nuclear crises, crises with North Korea, between India and Pakistan. It seems eminently reasonable to believe that we could contain, deter, and defeat even a nuclear Iran. But the key is going to be the very active participation of the United States to be much more engaged in the region. Uh, we can't lead from behind any time that Iran starts to threaten anybody in the neighborhood. We've got to intervene and make it into a U.S.-Iran crisis. Now, there's a good chance that somewhere in Tehran, an Iranian official is reading Ken Pollack's book right now and gaining a clear view of how the American policy community views the situation. For Americans, by contrast, there's no easy way to get a read on Iranian strategic thinking. The deliberations between Iranian Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei and his senior advisors are shrouded in secrecy. This is the sound of Iran's version of a war simulation broadcast on Iranian state television and featuring Iranian submarines and Iranian explosives. Toward the end of this clip, the captain of the submarine utters a telling phrase. He's calling out to Hossein, son of the Shiite patron Saint Ali, who was martyred in the southern Iraqi city of Karbala in the year 680. Shiism's trademark call to martyrdom, a mainstay of the Tehran regime's ideological rhetoric, is one reason why some policymakers question whether Iran would accept the same logic of deterrence that worked for the Soviet Union during the Cold War. I asked Ken Pollack how he would respond to that objection to his argument. We have seen other regimes that were willing to sacrifice large numbers of their people in pursuit of ideological goals. Uh, Joseph Stalin was willing to have tens of millions of Russians die to satisfy his goals, which were both ideological and, of course, very narrowly political and, and, uh, and even personal. North Korea has been willing to have millions of its own people starve to death in pursuit of its own goals. Um, in the case of the Iranians, obviously during the Iran-Iraq war, 
maybe several hundred thousand people die in pursuit of those goals. But what we've seen consistently across every one of those cases is that none of those countries is willing to risk nuclear war. The Iranians are murderous, they are aggressive, they're anti-American, they're anti-Semitic, and I use that term both in, in terms of both Jews and Arabs, right. uh, both Semitic peoples. But what we don't see is the Iranians being willing to kind of foolishly court their own destruction the way, for example, Saddam Hussein did. They like to test our red lines. But whenever they realize that they've actually overstepped one, they pull back very quickly. Ken, in your analysis, you seem to be making arguments based on how the regime has behaved outwardly in the past. But since political thinking tends to evolve, how do you use past actions to predict the future behavior of such an opaque regime? <laughs> oh, what a wonderful question, Joseph. <laughs> uh, with great difficulty, right. as you know. Uh, we make all kinds of assumptions about Iran that aren't necessarily supported by anything. They're just based on inference. And that is why my work tends to be based on the regime's actual behavior. What we actually do find out about the intent behind the behavior is often they come at things in ways that we don't quite understand, which again, you know, keeps bringing you back to the actual behavior. And in terms of the future, you know, I think that the, the questions that you'd want to ask yourself are really, what is the likelihood that Iran would suddenly lurch off into some direction completely incongruous with the direction that it's been heading in since 1979? Seems unlikely. And in fact, what I would argue is that if Iran were to lurch off in some truly unexpected direction, the most likely unexpected direction would be a very positive one would be one where those voices who would like to see Iran less ideological, more integrated into the rest of the world on better terms, that they would somehow win out. My fellow Americans, no one disputes that chemical weapons were used in Syria. The question now is what the United States of America and the international community is prepared to do about it. In the present standoff between the U.S. and Syria, the White House has argued that how the world responds to Syrian President Bashar al-Assad's use of chemical weapons will affect how Iranians respond to pressure to end their nuclear program. Failure to stand against the use of chemical weapons would weaken prohibitions against other weapons of mass destruction and embolden Assad's ally, Iran, which must decide whether to ignore international law by building a nuclear weapon or to take a more peaceful path. This is not a world we should accept. But is that really how Iranians view the situation? Kenneth Pollack. I get very nervous with all this talk about how the U.S. needs to bomb Syria to impress Iran. I'm just not convinced that the reputational effect is either as strong or as straightforward as many of its advocates are claiming. The assumption about reputation is that it assumes that the Iranians are going to interpret whatever we do in Syria the way that we would interpret it, or the way that we want them to interpret it. And boy, if there is anything that we have learned about Iran over the years, it is that they do not think like we do and do not see things the way that we do. You know, the Iranians believe that they're far more important than the Syrians are, and far more powerful than the Syrians are, and they believe that we, the Americans, think that they are far more important and far more powerful than the Syrians. So the Iranians could easily rationalize that anything we did to Syria, we wouldn't do to them, because of course they're much more powerful. 
What do you see as the chances that some kind of a confrontation in Syria will escalate into an American-Iranian war? I think it's very clear that the Iranians don't want to mix it up with the United States over Syria. What you're hearing, what we're seeing from the Iranians um, is that they have much bigger fish to fry. And I think that they are very wary of getting involved with the United States of America. I think they have a great deal of respect for American military power. And I think that they may be concerned that the U.S. is kind of looking uh, for an opportunity to uh, smash Iran's nuclear program. And I don't think that the Iranians necessarily want to give us that opportunity. Uh, you know, that said, it's not impossible that the Iranians might decide for whatever reason that they need to do something in response to an American military operation. And if that were the case, then yes, that, that I think could, would have the potential uh, to, you know, to cause a U.S.-Iranian confrontation. That's Kenneth Pollack, author of the new book, Unthinkable. You've been listening to Eye on Arabia. If you'd like to learn more or get in touch, follow me on Twitter at J-O-S-E-P-H-B-R-A-U-D-E or browse www.josephbrowdy.com. On my homepage, you'll also find a link to my weekly podcast in Arabic, Risalat New York, as well as links to books, articles, and upcoming events. Music